Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This is the podcast exclusively for supporters of the Islamic History Podcast, and we are covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, also known as the Sirah. And we are now in episode, Sirah episode number 29. So in this episode, we're going to mostly discuss the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which took place in Dhul Qa'ada 6AH, the sixth year of the Hijrah. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah, it is one of the most defining moments in Islamic history. It helped to accelerate the growth of Islam, and it all started in a rather innocent manner. It basically all started with the Prophet's decision to make Umrah, which is the minor pilgrimage to the Kaaba. He had had a dream where he and his companions were making Umrah and shaving their heads. And shaving your, your head, if you're not familiar with that, is the common practice, whether you're making Hajj or, or um, Umrah, to break Ihram. And Ihram is the uh, state of purity, so to speak, when someone's making pilgrimage, either to, um, well, making pil- pilgrimage to the Kaaba, but whether that pilgrimage is a minor pilgrimage called Umrah or the major one called Hajj. So, Ihram is a state of purity that Muslims enter to make pilgrimage to the Kaaba, whether it's Umrah or Hajj, and then we um, shave our heads in order to, well, it's a, it's a tradition in many ways to break Ihram, but the most common way is to, uh, particularly for men, to shave their heads. Women can just um, cut off a couple of locks or so, and there are other ways to break Ihram, but those are the common ways to exit the state of Ihram. Okay, sorry, didn't mean to give you a, a thick lesson there. Uh, moving on. So the Prophet told the companions of his dream, and so they were all happy. And the uh, Muhajirun were especially happy because they were from Mecca, and this was their first time being able to visit Mecca, and they missed their home a whole lot. And also many of the Ansar, who were not from Mecca, uh, mostly from Medina, but still they were excited also because um, basically they wanted to make pilgrimage to the Kaaba. The Kaaba was still considered... The um, a holy masjid for the Muslims, even though at that time it was being used as a pagan temple by the uh, Quraysh. And then he also invited some of the uh, local Bedouins who were allied to the Muslims, and some of them were hesitant, hesitant to join, but some of them did. All in all, though there are different numbers um, regarding how many people uh, made this trip with the Prophet to Mecca, all in all, somewhere between 1,400 to 1,500 Muslims joined him on this trip. We're going to go with about 1,400 or so. I think that's the most common number. Another reason the Prophet ﷺ also wanted to make Hajj, I'm sorry, Umrah, was because he also wanted to show people that Islam was not just about fighting. Uh, he, So far, since he had entered Medina, they have been involved in all these different battles with the Quraysh and also lots of raiding and attacks on other smaller um, tribes in the, in the region. So he wanted to give people a chance to see Islam, you know, not on the battlefield. This was an opportunity. So when he initially uh, made the decision and in his initial preparations for this Umrah, he had decided not to carry weapons. And he wanted to show and prove to the Quraysh who he probably guessed there would be some uh, hostility towards him entering Mecca. He wanted to show the Quraysh that this was a peaceful mission, a peaceful endeavor, and that they weren't there to fight. However, Omar, radiallahu anhu, his uh, companion, advised him that it would be wiser 
to um, bring some weapons just in case. And the prophet listened to Omar's advice, but he kept them separate. So he had the Muslims traveling, not with their weapons on their side as they're going to battle, but in a separate um, part of the caravan or their or their entourage so that it wouldn't look as if um, they're necessarily going there specifically to fight. So the Muslims prepared for Omrah. They put on their ihram garments. They brought along their sacrificial animals. If you know, one of, the, um, one of the rites of pilgrimage is to sacrifice an animal, sheep or a cow or a camel, depending on what, you're, what you can afford. Uh, at this point in time, they're mostly bringing uh, camels for the most part. He also left a, a blind man named Ibn, Ibn Umm Maktoum behind as his deputy, as the uh, basically the leader of Medina while he was gone. And they went off. But of course, as the Prophet expected, the Quraysh did block the Muslims from entering Mecca. When they're about 50 miles from Mecca, the Prophet began to receive reports that the Quraysh had, of course, learned about this 1,400-man caravan coming towards, coming towards Mecca. And they, were, they began mobilizing for war. And they had sworn among themselves, because once again, the Muslims and the Quraysh were in an active state of war at this point in time. They had, been to, they had had three major battles and lots of raids and attacks and, and fighting against each other. We mentioned so many, several times that the Muslims were betrayed by either the Quraysh or people working on behalf of the Quraysh. In any case, they uh, had sworn that they were going to block the Muslims from entering Mecca. And so they had their forces deployed to uh, block the main road as the, as the Prophet and his companions got closer and closer to Mecca. And bear in mind, Medina and Mecca are about 200 miles apart. I believe Medina is to the north, Mecca is further to the south. So they're about 200 miles apart. And so walking on foot or camelback these 200 miles is going to take several days. So definitely, as the Prophet and the Muslims came forward, it would have been easy for news to get to the, to the Quraysh that the Muslims were coming, this huge army, basically. It wasn't an army, we know that. But you can, you can basically imagine how the Quraysh would see this as an invading army dressed up in, as um, Ihram, or dressed up as pilgrims. So the Quraysh naturally blocked their way and wouldn't um, allow the Muslims to come in. But the Prophet ﷺ was, was determined, so he wanted to avoid direct confrontation with the Quraysh. And he was also upset that the Quraysh seemed to always want to jump to a fight. I've explained it from the Quraysh perspective how they saw this as an armed battalion of Muslims dressed up as pilgrims coming to invade Mecca. This would, be, this would have been perhaps a blight on their honor and prestige that they will allow their enemy to enter their home openly like that or they may have actually been truly concerned that the prophet would may have been trying to betray them and once he entered mecca disguised as pilgrims they would turn around and start fighting the Quraysh and take them by surprise perhaps they really were concerned about that or it most likely is a combination of both maybe practical concerns for for their security as well as their honor not their honor and not want to be talked about as you let your enemy walk into your home and you did nothing about it, something like that. From the prophet's perspective, the Kaaba has always been, it was a tradition in the Arabian Peninsula that the Kaaba was open for everybody. And for those people who are making pilgrimage, they're supposed to leave all of their differences, all of their fighting, all their internal conflicts outside the precincts of the Kaaba. Once they are 
prepare for pilgrimage once they're entering into the precincts of the Kaaba into Mecca for pilgrimage uh, concerns. All of their whatever tri- tribal rivalries they had, whatever problems they had with each other, all that stuff was supposed to be forgotten until the pilgrimage was over. This was a tradition, and the Meccans, the Quraysh particularly, they were honor bound to to uh, honor these things. It was their it was, it was they were honor bound, honor bound to respect this tradition, and it was actually their honor. They liked having this honor and this nobility of being the maintainers of the Kaaba, which was supposed to be the sanctity, this sanctuary of peace. But now, with the Muslims getting ready to enter, they suddenly forgot all about that stuff, and now they were ready to block the Muslims from coming in. So the Prophet was upset that the Quraysh were mobilizing to fight when. They were obviously dressed carrying, dressed in ihram and the traditional pilgrimage garb and also bringing along sacrificial animals when it was obvious the Muslims were coming there just for a peaceful endeavor. So the Prophet Wasallam, wanting to avoid a conflict with the Quraysh, he took an alternate route around away from the Qurayshi forces through some much more rugged and difficult terrain and then they finally made camp at the small watering hole named Hudaybiyah, about 10 miles west of Mecca. This watering hole was not very big. The water coming out of it wasn't that much. It wasn't enough with all these people and their animals. Remember, 1,400 companions, perhaps some women and children involved, maybe some slaves, and also all these animals. This little watering hole that they were at, Hudaybiyah, it was nearly dried out. And so the companions were complaining of thirst, and there just wasn't enough water from the small hole for everybody. And this is one of the miracles of the Prophet Sallallahu when the com- companions began to discuss or talk about how they, their thirst and their lack of water, the Prophet took an arrow and dipped it into the well, uh, this watering hole of Hudaybiyah, and water began to gush out. And this was enough for all of the um, animals and the, uh, and the companions to drink and, and stay alive. And so now the Prophet wants to try to open communications with the Quraysh and try to negotiate some sort of terms so they can be allowed to make Umrah. And so the first person he sent to them to speak with the Quraysh was a man named Quraysh ibn Umayyah. Quraysh, however, was from the Khuza'a tribe, which was a tribe not in Medina, not from Medina originally, but they were allied with the Muslims. So Quraysh was a companion, but he wasn't from Medina or Mecca. He was from the Khuza'a tribe. And when Kirash entered Mecca, because he was an outsider, he wasn't from Mecca, he was basically unprotected. And I think we've discussed how, maybe probably many, many episodes ago, but we discussed how protection and outsiders and family lineage is really important in the Arabian culture at this time. But anyway, Kirash was from the outside, and when he entered Mecca, the Quraysh ambushed him, and they crippled his camel, and they captured him. They were about to kill him. However... There were some men within Mecca there were, who were also Bedouins, not from the same tribe as Kirash, but they did not like this idea of capturing and killing a messenger from an outside party. This was a form of dishonor and a form of disgrace for them. And so even though these Bedouins, they were allied to the Quraysh, however, they opposed and objected to the, to the Quraysh killing the prophet's messenger, his emissary. And so they, they blocked it and they opposed it and they, and they didn't fight per se, but they argued against it. And finally, the Quraysh settled down and they let Kudash go back. They weren't having dealings with him, but they didn't actually hurt him. 
And so the prophet realized that he had to send someone who was from Mecca, someone who has some influence within Mecca. And so he uh, first he asked Omar ibn al-Khattab if he would go in there and speak with the Quraysh. And Omar, once again, we spoke about his, uh, his life story several episodes ago, well, uh, his conversion several episodes ago. And Omar was well known within Mecca. However, he was from a small clan, a small and a small weak clan. So Omar, he decided not to go. He declined. And his basic reason was that, number one, his clan was too small and too weak to protect him. And number two, his reputation was so uh, was so bad in Mecca because he was he had been an ardent opponent of the prophet then switched to becoming an ardent supporter of the prophet. And he had caused so much stress and, and tension between him and the Quraysh because he was such a strong supporter of the prophet. He had basically made a lot of enemies inside of Mecca. And we mentioned how, how many times did Omar threatened to cut off somebody's head. Come on. So the, um, he was like, no, I probably won't be the best decision. I won't, probably won't be the best person for this because I have uh, too many issues with the Quraysh and my clan is too weak. And even if they were, weren't weak, they probably wouldn't help me anyway. And so Umar declined. And, but he did suggest that the Prophet Wasallam send Uthman ibn Affan. Uthman ibn Affan, who would wind up becoming the third caliph of the Muslim world, of the Muslim world, Uthman was from Banu Umayyah, and the Umayyahs, of course, as you well know if you've been listening to the Islamic History podcast, was one of the more powerful tribes in Mecca. Banu Umayyah would wind up becoming establishing a, a dynasty that lasted for over a century um, within the Muslim world. And on top of that, Uthman, he was a respected member of Meccan society because he was a wealthy merchant. And even before he, um, before he actually uh, became a Muslim, he was a wealthy merchant, well-established, from a powerful family. And he had lots of connections in the city. So the Prophet ultimately chose Uthman to go and act as his emissary with the Quraysh. And, of course... The uh, the treatment they gave Uthman was completely different than the treatment they had given they had given the Prophet's first emissary Quraysh. When Uthman entered into Mecca, the Quraysh rushed to him and treated him with respect and greeted him and like it was old friends. And he began meeting with Abu Sufyan, who was once again one of his family members, basically from the same clan, um, Banu Umayyah. There's no way they're gonna hurt Uthman with Abu Sufyan, who was basically the the leader of Mecca being his relation and so they were um they were so happy or at least uh, so respectful of uthman that they invited and encouraged uthman to make tawaf around the kaaba that's how without even being prompted that's how much they respected uthman but uthman he refused and he said he wasn't going to do that until the prophet could do so as well and when he refused the Quraysh, their attitude towards him got uh, a little more hostile and they got angry with him, and they decided to imprison Uthman, or hold him cap- captive, per se, I should say. But once again, they didn't hurt him. They just wouldn't let him. They limited, limited his freedom of movement. But despite the Qureshi's, um hostility, Uthman, he continued to talk with them and try to negotiate with them. So now with Uthman taken prisoner, rumors start leaking out of Mecca and back to the Muslims waiting in their camp by Hudaybiyah. And word got back to the Muslims that Uthman had been imprisoned and that he had been killed by the Quraysh. And now the Prophet was very concerned about this. The Muslims had been betrayed several times before by the uh, Banu Quraydah, 
by um, those two instances where they sent Muslims to go teach pagan tribes. The Muslims had been, had been betrayed several times before. So they were on edge about being betrayed. And this right here would have been one of the ultimate betrayals to send your emissary to negotiate a well-known member of your of the society or of that city for one of the most powerful clans and then to turn around and kill him. That would have been a very serious, serious incident and almost certainly would have led to warfare. As a matter of fact, it would have left to warfare. There was no certain, <laughs> certainly would have led to warfare. So the prophet, when these rumors started coming back to him that Othman had been killed, he then pledged to avenge Othman's death and that they were going to fight the Quraysh if it was true that he was killed. But he did want confirmation of it first. So before they actually rushed into Mecca, he took a pledge from the other Muslims with him that they would also fight the Quraysh. And this pledge was known as the Pledge of Radwan, or Bayatul Radwan. And the last one was Allah mentions it in Surah Al-Fat, that's chapter number 48, uh, verse number 18. That basically, if Uthman had been killed, that they were going to follow the Prophet and they were going to fight the Quraysh until Allah decided between them. So, this pledge was taken under the tree, was again spoken, a tree at Hudaybiyah. But eventually, the Muslims learned that the rumors were false and that Uthman was fine, and they were able to settle down a bit. And so now the Quraysh began sending their own emissaries to the Prophet to negotiate with him about uh, how they're going to make this Umrah. And first things first, the Quraysh were adamant. They were absolutely certain and, and dead set that the Prophet and the Muslims could not enter Mecca that year. They did not want to look like they were being forced to concede to him. And at the same time, however, despite the fact that they were breaking custom by refusing him and it was tradition to allow people to visit the Kaaba, regardless of your own personal rivalries with, the, with this individual or with this tribe or with this group, this was something that their honor could not stand. And they, their egos basically would not allow them to let the prophet into Mecca this year. So the first person they sent was Odwa ibn Mas'ud, one of the uh, leaders of the Quraysh. So he went to talk with the prophet, and as they were going back and forth in their negotiations and dealings, he said, Odwa, that is, from the Quraysh, he said something that angered Abu Bakr, something that was um, anger, <laughs> angering to Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr said something I'm not going to repeat on here because I'm trying to keep this a clean podcast. He said something that really was disgusting <laughs> to basically saying something very bad about Odwa's um, deities, his his idols that he worshipped. Once again, I'm not going to repeat it on this podcast, but it was basically what we, we would consider a curse in our, in our time. Odwa ignored him and kept talking with the prophet. And then as a sign of familiar relations, I'm not sure if Odwa was actually related to the prophet in any way, anyway, but he reached out to touch the prophet's beard. I think this is more of a social thing, trying to establish some sort of friendly bond with the prophet, trying to keep things lighthearted. And he reached out to touch the prophet's beard. Someone smacked it away, just smacked his hand away before he could do it. And Odwa was just amazed at the loyalty between Abu Bakr cursing, cursing him and this person smacking his hand. He was amazed at the loyalty that these people had for the Prophet Anyway, Odwa didn't get too far. And so the, the Quraysh sent another person to go speak with him. This time it was Hulais ibn Alqama. He was from the Kanana tribe or Kanana clan. The Kanana, the Kanana were not from uh, Mecca. They were, they were pagans, but they were 
just allied to the Quraysh. And so um, Hulais came to speak with the Prophet, and the Prophet recognized him as somebody who, who respects the rights of Hajj. And so when the Prophet saw Hulais coming towards him, the Prophet tried to play on his emotions, basically, and had the Muslims bring out the sacrificial animals. This was because he knew Hulais's attitude, and he knew his character, and knew that this was a man who had a great respect for the pilgrimage and the rights of the pilgrimage that it entailed. And so he hoped that by showing this, making this big show of all these animals, it would soften Hulais's heart and help him to encourage the Quraysh to let the Muslims in. And sure enough, when Hulais saw the animals and saw them all prepared for, for sacrifice and for the, the Muslims dressed in their ihram, he was also uh, moved to that point as well. He went back and told the Quraysh that they should let the Muslims in and that they shouldn't be turned away because they did come for the uh, for the Umrah. But the Quraysh, because Hulais was from one of the Bedouin tribes, they basically dismissed his his advice and rejected him, saying he was just a Bedouin. He didn't know what was going on and said that he can just go ahead and mind his business. And so they sent another person. This time it was Suhail ibn Amr, who was from the... Uh, Quraysh, he was from a high-ranking member of the Quraysh. So when the Prophet saw Suhail ibn Amr coming, he was like, okay, now the Quraysh are serious. Now they're ready for to talk some real serious terms of peace because Suhail was related to one of the Prophet's wives and this was seen as a good gesture. So now the, the Quraysh were serious about trying to uh, let the Muslims come in. My bad. Not let the Muslims come in, but the Quraysh were serious about trying to resolve this stalemate, trying to figure things out. So the Prophet, he wanted to once again play on the emissaries, the Quraysh's emotions. And so and so to further encourage Suhail, the Prophet ordered the Muslims to start making uh, the labaik. I forgot the actual Arabic word for it, but this is the chant that Muslims say when they talbiyah. That's what it is, talbiyah. He started telling them to make talbiyah, which is the chance that Muslims make as they are approaching the Kaaba, approaching to make Hajj, preparing for Hajj, and also when they are going around the Kaaba at certain times. And I forgot all the words to it, but I know the, I remember the first two lines: Okay, so the Muslims started saying this, and this was once again to play on Sohel's emotions. And eventually, Sohel and the Prophet they were able to sit down. And they negotiated back and forth until they finally came to an agreement. And this agreement became known as the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, because once again, they were at the well of Hudaybiyah. And so the terms of the treaty, the terms of the final outcome of the negotiation between Suhail ibn Amr and Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, which became known as the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the terms were as follows. The Muslims would not make Umrah that year, but they could make it the following year. And there would be peace between the Muslims and the Quraysh for 10 years. And by the way, when the Muslims make Umrah the following year, they could only stay there for three days. That was part of the agreement as well. The Quraysh did not have to, this is going on to another term of the, of the treaty. The Quraysh did not have to return Muslims who came to Mecca. So Muslims who left Islam and decided to go to Mecca and, re and leave the Prophet's side and join the Quraysh in Mecca, the Quraysh did not have to return them. However, the Muslims had to return refugees from Mecca who came to Medina. 
let me try to clarify that. So there were all, there was already this case of people leaving Mecca to leave the pagan Quraysh and join the Prophet in Medina. That had happened several times. In fact, the Hijrah was all about that. So the Quraysh wanted that to stop. And they one of the terms of the agreement, agreement was that the Prophet had to return people, refugees from Mecca, who came to Medina, who came to Medina, the Prophet had to return them to Mecca. However, if there were people, though this rarely happened, rarely happened, I could only think of one instance where this happened. This is early on in the Muslim term, in the Muslim timeline. If any people left Medina and returned to the Quraysh in Mecca, the Quraysh did not have to return them back to, or did not have to send them back to Medina. The Prophet had agreed to that. They also uh, made an agreement that both parties could make allegiances with whoever they wanted, uh, even though they were basically in a state of peace. And both parties agreed not to exhibit hostilities or be antagonistic toward, towards each other. In other words, no raiding the caravans, no shows of forces, no uh, bolstering or blustering and trying to intimidate each other. Basically, be gener generally amicable with each other and treat each other with, with respect. And so with the terms agreed upon, the treaty now had to be signed and witnesses and witnessed. There were several companions who acted as witnesses, including Abu Bakr, Omar, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, and Ali ibn Abi Talib, and there were others as well. The Quraysh also had several of their people there uh, as witnesses to this treaty. And Ali ibn Abi Talib, he was the one actually writing the treaty out and basically preparing it for the two parties. And so when he began to write out the treaty, he started with the words Bismillah Rahman Rahim. But Suhail disagreed with this phrase and he did not really know about it. Everybody knew Bismillah, but they didn't know about Ar Rahman and Ar Rahim. That was a unique Muslim phrase. And so the Prophet he instructed Ali to instead of putting Bismillah Rahman Rahim, instead put in your name O Allah, or basically Bismillah. And so Ali then wrote the phrase as he was beginning to write out the the terms of the treaty. He wrote, the messenger of Allah has made peace with Suhail, and Suhail disagreed with that also. He disagreed with Ali using the words, the messenger of Allah. And from Suhail's perspective, he was like, we're not a, you can't say that he's a, you can't give him this title. That's why we're fighting in this first place. That's why we, that's why we have to have this treaty. If I believe that he was the messenger of Allah, we wouldn't be here fighting. So Suhail disagreed with that title or including that title with of the prophet inside the terms of the treaty because that was implicitly agreeing that the prophet was the messenger petty i know but whatever so the prophet then once again just to keep things moving on trying to keep this um this treaty going so there wouldn't be too many roadblocks and then he instructed ali to erase the phrase messenger of allah and just put muhammad ibn abdullah by this point, Ali couldn't do that. He was like, no, <laughs> that's because this is going to violate everything I believe in. And I can't do that. And so Ali just refused to, he couldn't bring himself to erase the uh, the term messenger of Allah. And I could kind of understand that, of course. That's like um, basically denying that the prophet was a messenger, even though he wasn't really denying it. I can understand it from Ali's perspective. I can, I can definitely understand why he didn't want to do that. And so the prophet, who wasn't really a reader, he had Ali show him where the words were. And so the prophet erased it himself. And then he replaced it with the phrase with his name and his kunya, basically 
his um not his Konya, his name his name and his pattern, which is Muhammad Ibn Abdullah. I'm not gonna go too deep into this, but this right here kind of flies in the face of the basic Muslim idea that the Prophet was hundred percent illiterate. And this is not really time to get go into it. I'm not sure if he was hundred percent illiterate or more just that he wasn't a very good reader and writer. Because based upon this event, he at least knew how to write his name. Now, maybe that's the only thing he knew. I don't know. Allah knows best. But there are, there are hadiths that the Prophet did not use to write also. I saw that as, as well. So this is really not the time to get into it. But I just want to bring it up into your mind that maybe the Prophet was not 100% alluded where he didn't even know the alphabet, the Arabic alphabet. We couldn't write anything. But perhaps he was just not a very good reader and not well versed as far as reading and writing is concerned like Ali and Abu Bakr and Omar were. Continuing on, I don't want to get too deep into that. So when the companions heard about the terms of the treaty, most of them were pretty upset and dismayed and shocked by it. Omar especially was shocked. Even He was one of the witnesses to the terms. He went back to Abu Bakr after the treaty had been signed and the people had kind of dispersed and were going about their, their business. He went to Abu Bakr in private and started asking him a bunch of questions saying, what, wasn't Muhammad the messenger of Allah? Abu Bakr said, yes, he was. And he was. And then he also asked him, weren't they Muslims? Abu Bakr was like, yes, we are. And he said, weren't their enemies pagans? Aren't they the enemies of Allah? And Abu Bakr was like, yes, they are. He said, why are we agreeing to this lopsided treating? Abu Bakr just advised him, just stick to, just stick with the prophet, follow him, he'll get us through. And Allah will reward us and we'll get through this. So Omar wasn't really satisfied with Abu Bakr's answers. So Omar, being the direct person he was, then went to the prophet and asked him the same questions. And the prophet once again, agreed in a similar way that Abu Bakr had, had um, agreed to all of his questions. And finally, the Prophet said that he was the messenger of Allah and that Allah would not let him fail. And so Omar afterwards, after, after many years, reflecting on this incident, he felt really bad about doubting this agreement and doubting the Prophet's, uh, I don't want to say motivations, but doubting what the Prophet had done or having him having his doubts about the prophet's tactics and strategies in this whole thing. And he continued to repent for, for his doubts for many years afterwards. The other companions were also equally disheartened and dismayed by this treaty. They felt that the prophet had basically given the Quraysh everything that they wanted, whereas the Muslims got very little. They didn't even get to make, make Umrah that year. <laughs> so they're about to go back home without even making Umrah. And they really didn't like the terms of the treaty. And then things got a little bit worse. There was a man named Abu Jandal. Abu Jandal was Suhail's son. Rem remember, Suhail ibn Amr was the person who was the main negotiator between the Quraysh and the Prophet, who basically outlined the terms of the treaty. So Abu Jandal and his brother Abdullah, they had secretly accepted Islam years ago when, they, when the Muslims were still in Mecca before the Hijrah. But for whatever reason, they weren't able to make Hijrah with the Prophet, but they had remained in Mecca, but they were still secretly Muslim. One of well, Abdullah, um, Abu Jandal's brother, Suhail's son, he rode out with the Quraysh when they went to fight in Badr. 
And so Abdullah rode out with them, but then when they got out to, Bar- to the Battle of Badr, he quickly switched sides and joined the Prophet's side. And he was able to go back to Medina with the Prophet, and he had stayed there. Abu Jandal, however, didn't join the pagans at the Battle of Badr, and so he was still in Mecca. And now when Abu Jandal, I'm sorry, when Abdullah switched sides, Suhail now realized that his sons were Muslim, that Abdullah, his son, rode out with him with Badr, and then switched switch sides and join the enemy. So Hell was upset now and he realized that his sons had accepted Islam. So Abu Jandal was still in Mecca. So Hell went back to Mecca and chained up Abu Jandal in his home so he couldn't go anywhere. So he couldn't escape or anything like that. And so Abu Jandal had basically been in chains in Mecca ever since the Battle of Badr. And the Battle of Badr was in year two. We're now in year four of the Hijrah. So this is like four years that he had his own son chained up. And so now, though, word gets to Abu Jandal that the Muslims were just a few miles outside of Mecca. And so when he heard this, he escaped from his chains, uh, from his imprisonment, and he came hobbling to the prophet. He was still chained up, but he escaped from whatever enclosure or prison that his father had put him in. He came hobbling to the prophet with his feet and hands still shackled. And he came hobbling to the prophet's tent and he begged the prophet just after the signing of this treaty. He begged the prophet to take him back to Medina. And Suhail is still there, his father, the one who basically made the terms of the treaty, the one who imprisoned him in the first place. He's there when his son comes hobbling in, shackled. And Suhail grabbed his son, Abu Janda, and began smacking him in the face. And then he turned back to the prophet and reminded the prophet of the terms of the treaty, saying he came in after we signed this treaty. So you must adhere and obey the terms of the treaty. And the prophet, he had to agree. He agreed and he would not let Abu Jandal come along with him. And when the prophet agreed, Sohail grabbed his son, started dragging him, his son back to Mecca. And remember, all the companions are there. They're all seeing this happening. And they already got a bad taste in their mouth for this treat in the first place. So Abu Jandal starts dragging his son. I'm sorry, Suhail starts dragging his son, Abu Jandal, back to Mecca. And Abu Jandal is begging and crying and screaming for someone to help him. He's just yelling for someone, some of the Muslims to help him, saying that the Quraysh were going to torture him and beat him and, and persecute him and put him through all sorts of punishment once he got, if they left him in Mecca. And so the companions... You know that their hearts are torn with this. They got to obey the prophet. But at the same time, they see this man who's one of their own about to be taken back to Mecca and be put through some horrific stuff. And so, you know, they're upset. But Omar, he goes along. He's he's walking by Abu Jandal. He's being dragged away and he's reminding Abu Jandal to be patient. And while he's talking to Abu Jandal, um, Abu Omar takes out his sword and holds it just under Abu Jandal's face, really close. So Abu Jan, basically, Omar was hoping that Abu Jandal would grab Omar's sword and attack his father and basically free himself. But Abu Jandal couldn't bring himself to fight his own father, kill his own father, and so he never did. And so Omar had to give up on that idea. So now there's really a cloud of darkness over the Muslim camp. This is a really emotional time for all of them, but it's time to leave though. Um, the agreement has been made and they're not making Umrah that year. And so it's time to head back to, to Medina. And so the prophet orders the men to sacrifice the animals and shave their heads and come out of the state of Ihram. 
remember we, we explained Ehram basically before that this was an indication that the pilgrimage was over, though they hadn't quite ma- made it, but now it's time for them to leave the state of Ihram and head back to Medina. And the companions, of course, were upset, and so the Prophet ordered they didn't obey immediately. The Prophet ordered them again and again. He ordered them three times, and hardly any of them moved to obey. So the Prophet went back to his tent with his wife, Om Salama, who had accompanied him on this trip, and told her about how the companions were not obeying. And so she advised him to uh, really don't say anything to them. Just go out and slaughter your animal and shave your head and... When you do this, those who truly believe will follow. So the prophet took his wife, his wife's advice, very good advice for some of our brothers out there. Prophet took his wife's advice and did exactly what she said. He shaved his head. Well, he slaughtered his animal first, and then he shaved his head. And when the companions saw him doing that, they started to feel ashamed, and they immediately began to obey him and do the same thing as well. And that basically ended their trip to Umrah. And they headed on back to Mecca. I'm sorry, headed on back to Medina. And so we're going to discuss how this treaty turned out for both parties now. We're going to spend a few minutes on that. One of the best illustrations of how this treaty played out in the long run was in the case of a companion named Abu Basir Utba ibn Asid. Abu Basir, he was like Abu Jandal, a Muslim whose family forced him to stay in Mecca. However, at some point in time, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, that is, and after the Muslims had returned, had returned to Medina, he escaped Mecca. He made his way to Medina. Not sure if he knew about the treaty or not. doesn't really matter. The point is, he made his way to Medina, and he basically wanted to be taken as a refugee. He wanted to take refuge in Medina and join the Muslims in Medina. Abu Basir's family, they sent two men with a letter to uh to the Prophet demanding that he return Abu Basir. And when those two men arrived from Mecca, the Prophet agreed and he told Abu Basir that he had to return to Mecca with these two men, but told him to be patient to be patient and that Allah would make a way out for him. So Abu Basir he obeys the Prophet and he heads back with the two men along the way, on the way back to Mecca, he asks one of the men if he could see their sword. So the man, for some odd reason, <laughs> let Abu Basir hold his sword, and as soon as Abu Basir got it, he killed the dude. He killed one of the men who his family had sent to bring him back to Mecca. The other guy who saw this, he ran back to Medina and told the prophet what happened. And Abu Basir comes strolling into the prophet's masjid a few minutes later, maybe not a few minutes later, he comes strolling into the prophet's masjid a little bit later, and he tells the prophet, well, you obeyed your part, you did your part, you fulfilled your obligation, so you've done your part, and I'm still here. So he was trying, I guess, in a way to absolve the prophet from obeying the treaty that he had signed, but the prophet was not happy about this, and he he didn't curse um, Abu Basir, but he was very upset. He called him a kindler of war, a kindler of the fires of war. So, Because what Abu Basir was doing was going to, it could easily uh, break the, can be considered a breach in the terms of the treaty and start war. And the Prophet was trying to have some peace. He was trying to not go to war for a few years so they could work on the development of Medina and begin to actually spread Islam and show that Islam is not all about fighting. Prophet was definitely not upset. And so when Abu Basir saw the Prophet's reaction, he knew that eventually the Prophet was going to send him back to Mecca. And so he decided to leave Medina on his own. 
And but he was not going to go back to Mecca, though. He left Medina and he set up camp at a place called Al-Is, several miles north of Medina towards the towards the, the coast of the Red Sea. And he just basically lived on his own, basically not in Medina, but not in Mecca either. Still Muslim, though. He understood he couldn't go back to Medina where the prophet was because the prophet was sending him back. But in no way he's going back to Mecca and submit himself to the torture and persecution of the Quraysh. And so he stays out there, but eventually word gets back to Medina that there's a third option. <laughs> we can't go to Medina. We don't want to stay in Mecca. Let's just stay out here and live out in the wild on our own. And so Abu Jandal, whom we spoke of a few minutes ago, he hears about Abu Basir hanging out at Al-Ais over there near the coast of um, um, near the coast of the Red Sea. He escapes his father and joins Abu Basir also. And word keeps going out. And before long, 70 Muslims, refugees from Mecca, had escaped Mecca. And rather than go to Medina and join the Prophet, they instead joined this little commune or whatever with Abu Basir and Abu Jandal. And so now this is not the Prophet's fault now. He's not breaking the treaty or anything. He can't control that these guys are going off and doing their own thing. That's out of his control, out of his jurisdiction. And so these men now who have basically escaped Mecca. And it's surprising also there were 70 people within Mecca, 70 Muslims in Mecca who just couldn't leave. Imagine how many others, women and children, well, maybe not children, but women who couldn't leave also. So these are just the men who were able to escape. There are so many others like slaves who probably didn't have the means to escape or just others who may have been too weak to escape. So who knows how many Muslims were still within Mecca who wanted to leave and join the prophet, but for various reasons could not. And so Abu Basir and Abu Jandal and all these refugee Muslims, they began attacking Meccan caravans. So as the Quraysh caravans were heading north towards Syria, they would attack them hard and they would take their property, kill all the men who were, who were escorting the caravan. Some of the men who were escorting the caravan, they may have been those hidden refugees or those hidden Muslims who wanted to join in the first place. Many of them accepted Islam and joined Abu Basir and Abu Jandal and the rest of these uh, refugees and everything. But this was really hurting the Quraysh economy because every single caravan that they knew was going north towards Syria, Abu Basir and his crew would hit it hard. And the Quraysh were really upset about this. And so they sent word to Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, basically saying, let's ignore this part of the treaty. Take these men in because they are causing more damage than you were on your own. They're causing even more damage to us. So take these men in and let them stay. And so the Prophet said word that the men could now come to Medina and now they had to obey him. And he was not going, the Prophet was not going to break the treaty and have them hitting caravans and stuff like that. However, Abu Basir, he got sick just a little bit before or just after the prophet had summoned them to join him in Medina, and he died out there near the Red Sea coast before actually making it back to Medina. So Abu Basir never got to join the prophet in Medina, but Abu Jandal and the others did. And so one other aspect of the treaty, now we mentioned that this part of male refugees leaving were now allowed to stay in Medina now. That part had been basically annulled by the uh, Quraysh and the Muslims in agreement. However, female Muslim refugees, they were still expected to be to be returned to Mecca. 
there's no concern that you're going to have a female band of Muslims attacking caravans. The Quraysh weren't really worried about that. And so they insisted that female refugees still be returned, just the male refugees, they stay in Medina. But the women had to go back to, to Mecca. And eventually, that part of the treaty got tested also. A woman named Umm Kulthum bint Amr, she, converted to, she had converted to Islam in Mecca, but her husband was still pagan, and he did not convert. And so she could not leave Mecca because her husband didn't let her leave. And so she had to stay in Mecca with her disbelieving husband. But eventually she escaped somehow or another, and she made her way to Medina also. Her family sent her brothers to come back and get her, and they demanded the Prophet return her according to the terms of the treaty. Before that could happen, however, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses of the Qur'an forbidding the women from being returned. This was in Surah Al-Mumtahina, uh, chapter 60, verse 10, basically where Allah forbade the return of female refugees or women refugees back to Mecca. And so instead, what the Muslims had to do what the prophet had to do, so some, rather than return the women, they had to return their dowry. Because basically, if they were, whoever they were married to, that was over now. So their marriage was annulled because the woman had accepted Islam and the, and the husband did not. And so that marriage was annulled. And so the prophet, instead of sending the women back, he was ordered to instead repay the dowry. And that's how he was able to make the Quraysh whole with that, in that regard to the treaty. So finally, let's just discuss some of the benefits of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he did reveal more verses from Surah Al-Fatah that declared, uh, and that's chapter number 48, and Fatah actually means victory. Allah declared that this treaty was actually a victory for the Muslims, and even though com the companions did not see it at the time that the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was signed, though they did not see it as a, as a, uh, as a victory, it, it most certainly was. That was because the treaty allowed the Muslims to finally share Islam peacefully. More people accepted Islam in the two years following Hudaybiyah than all the years before that, that the Prophet was preaching Islam. More people accepted it in those two years after Hudaybiyah. And so the treaty of Hudaybiyah was a major change for the Muslims, a major breaking point in the growth of Islam. And in addition to that, the Prophet now had the opportunity to reach out beyond the Arabs, beyond the Arabian Peninsula, and to talk to people outside of Arabia. And we're going to talk about that in the next episode, inshallah. So just a few more events regarding the sixth year, sixth year of the Hijrah. None of these are really, really important. I just want to mention them to you. There are various minor raids between the Muslims, not the Quraysh, obviously, but other pagan tribes that the Muslims did not have any agreement with. Various minor raids between the two, but um, I'm not going to get into all of them. Some of them were led by, many of them actually were led by Zayd ibn Haditha. There's also one led by Abdurrahman ibn Auf and another one by Abu Bakr. But once again, there's so many small ones, it's, it would be very tedious to go through all of them one by one. There's also a severe drought in, during this time, though it is a desert. I think we'll always have a drought, but this is evidently much, uh, much more uh, destructive or much more severe than it normally is. And during this year, during the month of Ramadan of this year, the Prophet led the Muslims in Salat al-Istisqa, which is the prayer for rain. Also, two other minor events. Aisha's mother, the wife of Abu Bakr, died in this year. And the companion and the compiler of Hadith, Abu Huraira, he accepted Islam in this year. 
And so that will conclude the events regarding the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. In the next episode, inshallah, we're going to discuss how the Prophet began to reach out to people outside Arabia and try to spread Islam beyond the peninsula and turn it into an international phenomenon. That will be coming up next time, inshallah. But until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.